Good morning. It is awesome to have you here. Uh, my name is Pastor Brad, and um, boy, that is a major theme of what we're going to be talking about today. I mean, the very reason we get to tell and share our stories is because he lives. Amen? Amen. And it's a series that we are launching into called uh, My Stories, His Story. Actually, we've been in it a couple of weeks. Easter Sunday, we talked about because Jesus lives, that Mary's life was changed. We talked about Peter's life who's changed. We had 30-some people share their cardboard testimonies of how their life has been changed. And then last week, we, uh, I know if you were here, you were blessed uh, to hear David Ring share about how his life has been changed because Jesus Christ lives. And um, today, we are going to be looking at a very interesting biblical story Um, called The Story of Rahab. And so if you have your outline, I invite you to take that out. And over the course of these next six weeks, we're going to look at some biblical stories, and we're also going to look at some real-life stories of how God um, has changed our lives and made uh, our history, our past, His story. One of the reasons why it is so interesting and so intriguing to look at the story of Rahab is because of we see where she falls into place in the New Testament. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can just briefly breeze over Hebrews chapter 11. And many of you will recognize that that chapter is one called the Hall of Faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we, we see all these giants of the faith. And it says, by faith, so-and-so did such. And faith, by faith, by faith, Abraham did. And by faith, Joseph did. And by faith, Moses did. And then we come across this interesting person. It's an Old Testament character. But in verse 31 of chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, it says, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And if today you are here and you have ever felt like God cannot use someone like me, God cannot use someone like the past, uh, someone who has a past like I have, you could not be more wrong. Because realize, Rahab started off as a call girl. That's how she was labeled. That's how the scripture says it calls her Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute. However, she was a call girl, but by the end and when we read in Hebrews chapter 11, we now see her as being a called girl. The story of Rahab, from call girl to called girl. Let's see how this takes place. When Rahab first comes into the scene, it's in Joshua chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Joshua chapter 2. First book that Moses did not write is Joshua. So he wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, commonly called the Torah or the Pentateuch. And then Joshua writes this story, and Joshua is the leader and the commander of the Israelite nation. And he tells about two spies. And so Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially the land of Jericho. 
Now, to know Rahab's story, it only helps to know the story of Jericho and the city of Jericho. So I'm going to be displaying a few pictures behind me. Pictures of the first one here is actually, ah, you kind of got to the point that I didn't get to, didn't you? All right, let's go with that. We'll go with the point. All right, you ready for this? My PowerPoint people are right on this. This is good. Fill this out. It's not about who you are, but about whose you are. It's not about who you are, but about whose you are. And I'll fix this cardboard as we get ready to share this as well. What do I mean by that? Well, that's where Rahab's story is so interesting and so unique. And again, the story of Jericho has to be told to be able to view the story of Rahab in a greater way. So let me show you the pictures that are here. These are actual uh, walls that have been excavated, uh, buried for thousands of years in dirt and sand. Uh, And just within the last 80, 85 years, they have discovered some of these walls. Today, Jericho is in the politically unsafe area of the West Bank. Um, And so it, it, it makes a very strategic city in the Old Testament, uh, not as much today, but, but in, even still some today, because of its location. And so let me share with you where it is. Here is the Dead Sea. Here's the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is up and down the Jordan River and in these areas. Here's the city of Jericho. Now, what's unique about this, for those of you over here, I'll kind of point this out over here. What's unique is that you have the Jordan River that's on the east, and you have a mountain range that's on the west. And of course, the Dead Sea is underneath it. So anytime you're wanting to go from this area, which is where the Israelites were, and pass over to this area, you have to go through Jericho. In other words, you could not not go through Jericho. It was a major crossroads. And so it became a well-known city. It became a very wealthy city because of its trading. And it is probably the world's uh, oldest continually inhabited cities, one of them in the entire world. It was probably the first uh, uh, metropolis ever was right here in the city of Jericho. And so there's uh, some unearthed Stone Age, even back to the Stone Age type of artifacts that they're now finding. Uh, By Joshua's time in Scripture, you know, we often think that that was way, way back. This city had already been in place for a couple of thousand years, in fact, when Joshua's story is taking place. So this is a legendary fortress that is here. But there was one time when the walls were penetrated, and it has to do with the story of Rahab. God's judgment was coming upon the nation or the city of Jericho, probably because it's evil ways. And it was done through the nation of Israel, who had escaped about 40 years earlier from Egypt. Okay, so Moses does the whole, let my people go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh calls them back and forth. Finally, they are free. Moses has now passed on. Joshua is taking the people through. 40 years earlier, they have been wandering through the wilderness. And now God tells them to go from the wilderness over to... Jordan. The problem is, to get there, you have to go through this Canaanite land. And so the Israelites kind of try and go through, and they're at first like, hey, don't bother us. We'll just be moving through here, Uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of them. Well, they take notice. In fact, the king of Canaan, one of the kings, did not want them going through this land. And so the Canaanites had this vastly superior military army, but God allowed the Israelites to defeat the Canaanites um, at the Amorite cities uh, 
Uh, and two of them we see in Scripture, which is Sihon and Og. And the Canaanite cities take notice, and they band together to try and annihilate Israel. And this is where Joshua, who is this military strategist, comes in because he says, Our God is more powerful than your God, so let's go after Jericho. And that's just what the Israelites do. And so Joshua sends these two spies, and they wade through the Jordan River, probably up to you know, their shoulders going through the river. And then they come under the darkness of night into the city. And, and now they find a bigger problem, because as they approach the city, they see that there are walls. And they have to decide, how do we get in unnoticed to be able to examine these walls to conquer the city? Well, the two spies... Find the city's one weakness. You know what it was? The red light district. Verse 1, second part. They went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. So why did the spies go there? Well, the Bible says Rahab's dwelling was actually perched on top of the wall. Think, if you would, um, the Great Wall of China. And maybe you've been there yourself or you've seen many, many people walking along that wall. You know that it, 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 it's a distance. Maybe it could be from the, the, the entire stage. It could be that wide. And so her home was actually sitting on top of the wall. And there's an outer wall and there's an inner wall. And so she's up on top of there. And so these, these spies are going perhaps to take measurements. Perhaps they are there to see how the guards protect it. Perhaps they're there to see how can we find an uh, easy escape route, the easiest way out of the city. And the spies are probably also a lot less likely to be noticed by going to this place because many men probably were frequenting this place, if you know what I mean. It's a, it's a place of prostitution. Men would go in, maybe, maybe covering their faces when they went in. Uh, discretion was, was kind of understood. People would say, oh, yeah, we don't care. We, we don't really pay attention. We just look away from what goes on over in that part of our city. Well, this is the place where Ross, uh, Rahab is now introduced into the story. And so I told you a little bit about the, the setting of Jericho. Let me tell you a little bit about her life. And, and, and as I do this, let me just say, the Bible talks pretty openly about Rahab and what she did. It doesn't try and hide her past. It doesn't try and scrub it clean. It, the Bible... We'll talk about the warts of the leaders as well. Spiritual giants, they all had sin in their lives. They, they all did wrong things. And here's Rahab, who's commended in the book of Hebrews and talked about in the book of James. We'll get to that. And here she is. She, she operates this, this business. Rahab was a prostitute. She was selling her body. She was in a pagan culture that glorified debauchery. And by all accounts, she was pretty good at it. I mean, one theologian said that that was prime property. That was a prime location where she was on the wall. And so she was probably a major player with destroying the, the morals of the cultures inside Jericho and maybe the cultures around Jericho as well because men would go there. And they would frink with those places. And they would say, hey, Jericho's got a great, quote-unquote, resting place. Wink, wink, if you know what I mean. Go, it's all right. 
which, which begs the question. If, uh, if the Lord is, is delivering judgment upon Jericho, why is he also not judging Rahab? I mean, think about this. She no doubtably was, was helping to destroy marriages. She no doubtably was sinking men into this moral sewer and the culture into this moral sewer. She probably stomped on the hearts of many uh, wives uh, whose husbands went there undercover. She, she helped spread diseases into the land. I mean, think about it. If you were a holy God, if you and I came upon this, this, this place, we would probably want to destroy Rahab along with this city, not use her for our purpose, not place her in, in this great hall of faith that she is talked about and committed for at the end of Scripture. I mean, if you and I were God, we would probably put her in front of a firing squad. But thankfully, you and I are not God, Right? In fact, your spiritual destiny, my spiritual destiny, is linked in with Rahab. And we'll get that in just a second. But all in all, when we first meet Rahab, she is not such a good girl. In fact, she's more hooker than holy, if you want to be honest about it. I, I mean, and that's who she is. And if you don't like me saying it in that way, if you don't like that fact, um, you know what? You're not alone in that. Because in the days of Jesus, there were some Hebrew scholars who, who tried to kind of change her background. They kind of tried to change the text a little bit. Um, they said that the Hebrew word for prostitute is a word that also means to feed, or, or it sounds like the word to feed. And, the, and so they said, well, you know what, maybe she just owned a restaurant, and we'll say that that's what she did instead of prostitution. But then true Bible scholars came along and said, nope, it's prostitution. That's that's what she was. In fact, the Greek translation, the Septuagint, the earliest of ones, uses the word porne. You recognize that word? Oh, no, we don't recognize that word, Pastor Brad. No. Oh, yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do, right? Yeah, and, and, and if you visited the ruins of, of, if any of you have been over to the Mediterranean area, my wife and I went there a number of years ago into the city of Corinth, you know those cities, those cultures were hyper, hyper-sexualized cultures. And so this, this porne word is the word for prostitution. That's what Rahab was. She was a major player in this. You cannot scrub that clean from her past, from her history. It's there. And why that is so significant is because the point of her story is that God can use anyone by his grace. Amen? God can use anyone, anyone who has had a past. Because you know what? You and I, we're not the cleanest of people. I've done some things I'm not very proud of. You've done some things you're not very proud of. But by God's grace... He allows us to come in relationship with him. He allows us to be used for his purpose. God's grace covers our past. In fact, Jesus, when he comes onto the story, some 1,200 years after even Rahab's story, look at what he is telling some religious leaders. In Matthew chapter 21, verse, uh, I believe it's verse 31. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of the day, and he says, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the, and the what? Whoa, can we say that in church? You just did, didn't you, right? Okay. 
the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. I mean, that went over real well with the religious leaders, didn't it? Now we know why Jesus was crucified, right? I mean, they did not like those words. They were going after him because he was saying the tax collectors and the prostitutes are coming in. Why? Because the prostitutes know before God, they're toast. They have nothing to stand on. They didn't have any illusions of this. Their past was horrible, and they knew it. To have God's favor, it had to be about God's grace. There was no way they are coming in. And so with that kind of a heart, they knew they had no standing. Compare that to the religious leaders of the day who thought they knew it all. They knew what would get them in, and it was going to be their good works, and they're following the law. They were there. Remind you, folks, it is not about who you are. It's about whose you are. And your story is now his story. Your story can be history when God covers it through the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, the story continues, and uh, it does with an answer to the question that maybe some of you have here already. How was Rahab such a woman of faith? I mean, I mean think about that. Where, where does that all come into play? Because she's commended here in the Old Testament. She's also mentioned three times in the New Testament, and two of them specifically talks about her great faith. How does that all play in? Well, let me give you the second Point that I wrote down on the outline, and that's this. Faith starts in the heart, but leads to action. Faith starts in the heart, but it leads to action. Because in Joshua 2.2, the king gets a whiff that something is not right in Jericho land. And here's what he does. Joshua chapter 2, verse 2. It was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, you enter, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. And this is where Rahab does something that surprises even me. Watch this. Rahab, being in the business that she was, was probably all about the money. And so there was probably going to be some sort of reward, some sort of favor that is given for turning in these spies. But she doesn't even flinch. Look at verse 4. It says, But the woman, that is Rahab, had taken the two men and had hidden them. Which in her line of business, she had probably hidden a man or two inside of her home, Right? But this time it was different. In that 10-second window, between the time that there was a knock on her door and she had to decide, do I turn these men in or not? She said in her heart, I'm all in. I'm putting my faith in their God. I'm pushing all my chips to the middle of the table. It is sink or swim time. And she acted upon what she believed. Now, James stresses this in the New Testament. If you know the theme of the book of James, it's it's faith without deeds is dead. Your faith is demonstrated by what you do. You have a faith, but it is demonstrated by how that faith is put into practice. Look at what happens with Rahab here. As she now believes, look at what she tells the spies a little later in chapter 2. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 9. 
Rahab says to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Why? Well, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. How many years before was that? It was just 40 years, right? And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. See what she does there? And so in this brief 10-second window, when the knock happens on the door and she decides, do I hide them or do I turn them in? She hides the spies. And she answers the door. Now she does. Go back up to verse 4. That's where the story kind of progresses. Verse 4 says, she says to the soldiers there, True, the men have come to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for then you will overtake them. And verse 6 says, But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. Rahab put her faith in action and risked her life by siding with the one true God, Jehovah. She had heard about this God. She had heard what that God had done. And now she had said, yes, I believe in that God. I'm pushing my chips to the table. I'm there and I'm siding with these men because God has a greater plan with these men than he does for our city. And she is commended for this by New Testament writers. James uses her as an example, and he pairs her with a very interesting one. In fact, if you would, keep your thumb in the book of Joshua and go over to the book of James. It's right after the book of Hebrews that we just looked at, Hebrews chapter 11, James chapter 2. The theme of James is really found in verse 14 where it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And so he offers Abraham as an example. This, this is so intriguing to me. He offers Abraham as an example of this. This is Abraham who has believed and followed God into new lands. This is Abraham who has believed and has offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. And so speaking of Abraham, he says, go down to verse 22. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. It was shown, it was displayed that he believed and had faith by what he did. And then James says about Rahab, look down to verse 25, and in the same way, comparing her to Abraham, in the same way, was not that also prostitute, the, uh, Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and went uh, and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is what? It's dead. It's dead. Maybe it's just me, but it is amazing that these two are even mentioned in the same category, let alone James mentions them in the same breath. Abraham and Rahab, the prostitute. 
I mean, what that tells me is God's just looking for a mustard seed of faith. Just a mustard seed of faith to begin your journey. And please understand this as well. In your life today, 2015, when you do what is right by the way of the Lord, the Lord will remember that and he will reward that. Let me say that again. When you do what you know is right, the Lord will remember that and he will reward that. Because look how this plays out in the story. Jump back over to Joshua chapter 2, verse 12. says, now then, this is, this is Rahab speaking to the spies after the soldiers have been sent away. He says, now then, she said, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and will give me a sure sign. Now, now let me back up because we've just read a couple of times where she talks about being dealt with kindly. And I would imagine that Rahab had not been dealt with very kindly throughout all of her life. She'd been used. She'd been abused. But now she's dealt with kindly. And she says in the latter part of 12, and give me a sure sign, verse 13, that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters. And all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Rahab asked for a sign. What's the sign? Before leaving, the spies asked Rahab to tie a red cord to her window that would drop out of her window onto the wall, signifying that this was her household, signifying that when the Israelites came to destroy the land, she could be passed over, she and everyone within her household. Now, if you want to put some history together, remember just 40 years earlier when Moses was bringing his people out of the promised land? And do you remember what one of the plagues was? One of the plagues was the firstborn child would be killed in each of the households. However, if you painted or put blood upon the what? Doorposts of your home, then that plague would pass over your household, same sort of thing is going on here where they tell her, you take this scarlet cord and you, you place it outside of your household. We'll pass over and not harm you in this household. I mean, as a Christian, we, we have to even draw a semblance with that of the Passover and the Passover and how that leads into a time of communion, what communion stands for in us, what the blood of Jesus did for us, foreshadowing the cross. I mean, I'm just amazing, amazing connections and, and dialogue that we can have if we read this story and go over it slowly. And try. The rest of the story is an amazing story. I don't have time to finish it all. Um, the Israelites march around the city seven times, blow the trumpets, the walls fall down. Everyone inside is killed, but Rahab and her family, they are saved. The Israelites depended upon the Lord. Fabulous story. But what I want to do for just a second here at the end is I want to focus back in on Rahab because the, the, the totality of the story that you can read here in Joshua is amazing, but let's go back to Rahab, because this is her story. Um, whatever happens to Rahab after this, ha after this takes place, amazingly, 
The Bible tells and talks a lot about Rahab and her life afterwards. In fact, if you, in the book of Joshua, want to turn over to Joshua chapter 6, look at verse 25. Because it says, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. In other words, when Joshua was finishing this book, she was still living there with the Israelites. And we find out a little bit more about Rahab when we put pieces together because we find out that Rahab meets an Israelite by the name of Salmon and falls in love with him, gets married to him, and they have a child by the name of Boaz. And Rahab and Salmon must have been great parents because they instilled manners and character into their son because Boaz turns out to be one of the most honorable and gentlemanly people in all of Scripture because this son of a prostitute grows up and he marries this down-and-out Moabite woman by the name of, anybody know her name? Ruth, by the name of Ruth, and they follow the Lord, and they have a son by the name of Obed, they have a son by the name of Jesse, and Jesse has a son by the name of, anybody know what his son's name is? David. That is King David. That is the greatest King David. That is David, a man after God's own heart, David. And so what that means is that Rahab ends up being the great, great grandmother of King David. And as much of a wow story as a wow moment as that is, the reason for it is because, and I put down the next point on there, it's because it's not about my history, but it's about his story. His story in my life. It's not about my story or my history, but it's about his story. That is, Rahab is a great example of this, even because how she's tied in with you. And if you have not made this connection yet, let me help you make it. Not only is Rahab the great-great-grandmother of King David, but of someone else very, very significant. In fact, watch this. Rahab's name appears in the New Testament three times. The first time is probably the most stunning time. Because on the first page, in the very first paragraph of the very first gospel of the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew starts the Christmas story by listing a genealogy where Rahab is listed as an ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. That's how significant Rahab is is to our spiritual journeys. She is a spiritual ancestor of Jesus. Her faith demonstrated in that 10-second window that really showed who she trusted in affects your life and my life. See, the genealogies are there in place to show kind of a bigger picture perspective on on how our lives impact other lives. They're, They're there in place to show how our history has impacted and come along and now can be a part of his story. And so it's not about your past, it's about your future, which, by the way, um, what do you have in your past? What's your story? 
I mean, maybe you, you saw the word that was up there on the screen, the, the, you know, the Greek word porne. Maybe that's been in your back or your, your, your past. You know, it was running rampant, prostitution running rampant as it was in Rahab's day. I mean, we live in a hypersexualized culture today as it was in Rahab's day as well. And Rahab is just an example of God changing a life. What about your story? Where are you at in that? Let me share with you a modern-day example of a, of a life that was changed. And it comes from a book called um, Bad Beginnings to Happy Endings that Ed Young tells. And um, it's a true story of a man by the name of Rusty Wellborn. Let me just read it to you. It says, Police arrested 23-year-old Rusty Wellborn following one of the most brutal slayings in South Carolina history. Rusty was tried for murder and received the death penalty for his crime. Rusty lived his whole life in prison in a stupor, never responding to anyone who talked to him and living in a cell amidst filth. Bob McAllister, deputy chief of staff to South Carolina's governor, became acquainted with Rusty on death row. Bob had become a Christian a year or so earlier and felt a strong call from God to minister to the state's inmates, especially those who are now on death row. Bob's first look at Rusty revealed a pitiful sight. Rusty was lying on the floor when he arrived, a pathetic picture of a man who believed he mattered to no one. The only signs of life in the cell were the cockroaches who scurried over everything, including Rusty himself. He made no effort to move or even to brush the insects away. He stared blankly at Bob as he began to talk. Rusty didn't even respond. During visit after visit, Bob tried to reach Rusty, telling him of the love Jesus had for him and his opportunity, even on death row, to start a new life in Christ. He talked and prayed continuously, and finally Rusty began to respond to the stranger who kept invading his cell. Little by little... He opened up until one day he began to weep as Bob was sharing with him. On that day, Rusty Wellborn, a pitiful man with murder and darkness behind him and his own death closing in ahead of him, gave his heart to Jesus Christ. When Bob returned to Rusty's cell a few days later, he found a new man. The cell was clean and so was Rusty. He had renewed energy and a positive outlook on life. Bob continued to visit him regularly, studying the Bible and praying with Rusty. In fact, the two men became close friends over the next five years. In fact, Bob said that Rusty grew into the sun he never had. And as for Rusty, he had taken a calling to Bob. Uh, He had taken a liking to Bob so much that he now began to call him Pap. Bob learned that Rusty's childhood in West Virginia had been horrible. His family was destitute, and Rusty was neglected and abused as a youngster. School was an ordeal both for him and for his teachers. Throughout his junior high years, he wore the same pair of pants and two ragged shirts. Out of the shame, frustration, and a lack of adult guidance, Rusty quit school in his ninth grade year, a decision that was just beginning, was just the beginning of the troubles that he was now in. His teenage years were full of turmoil as he was kicked out of his home many times and ran away countless others. He spent the better part of his youth living under bridges and in public restrooms. 
But Bob now taught Rusty the Bible. But interestingly enough, Rusty was the teacher when it came to love and forgiveness. This young man who had never known real love was amazed and thrilled about the love of God. He never ceased to be surprised that other people could actually love someone like him through Jesus Christ. Rusty's childhood enthusiasm was a breath of fresh air to Bob who came to realize how much he had taken for granted, especially with regard to the love of his family and his friends. In time, Rusty became extremely bothered by the uh, devastating pain that he had caused the family and friends of the murdered victim. Knowing that God had forgiven him, he desperately wanted the forgiveness of those that he had wronged in his life. Then a most significant thing happened. The brother of the woman Rusty had murdered became a Christian. God had dealt with him for two years about his need to forgive his sister's killer. And finally, he wrote Rusty a letter that offered him not only forgiveness, but also love in Christ. Not long before his scheduled execution, this man and his wife came to visit Rusty. Bob was present when the two men met and tearfully embraced, like long-lost brothers finally reunited Rusty's senseless crime 10 years earlier had constructed an enormous barrier between himself and the brother. The love of Christ obliterated that barrier and enabled both men to realize that because of what Christ had done, they truly were brothers reunited on that day. It was a lesson that Bob would never forget. Not only did Rusty teach Bob how to love and forgive, but he also taught him a powerful lesson about how to die. As the appointed day approached, Rusty exhibited a calm and assurance like Bob had never seen. On his final day, with only hours remaining before his 1 a.m. execution, Rusty asked Bob to read to him from God's word. After an hour or so of listening, Rusty sat up on the side of his cot and said, You know, the only thing I wanted ever was a home, Pap, and now I'm going to get one. Bob continued his reading, and after a few minutes, Rusty grew very still. Thinking he had fallen asleep, Bob placed a blanket over him and closed his Bible. As he turned to leave, he felt a strong compulsion to lean over and kiss Rusty on his forehead. A short time later, Rusty Wellborn was executed for murder. A woman assisting Rusty in his last moments, though, shared this postscript to the story. As he was being prepared for his death, Rusty looked at her and said, What a shame that a man's got to wait till his last night alive to be kissed and tucked in for the very first time. You know, Rahab had been to bed with many men, but I'm sure she had never been kissed or tucked in. But my guess now is that Rahab found the love she was looking for through a godly husband by the name of Salmon, who loved her in a godly way. 
And my guess is that when Rahab was an elderly woman, after having lived a life in relationship to her God, that their son Boaz, remember Boaz, a gentleman Boaz? I'm sure he would kiss his mother goodnight and tuck her in as well. But most importantly, I would guess that uh, Rahab grew to get that from God. Being a woman of the night, she is now redeemed by God, and God, I'm sure she felt, kissed and tucked her in. You know, I'm not sure what's in your past, but what Scripture tells me is that our past is our past, and Christ is our future. In fact, the last fill-in I have on the bottom of the page says this. My history doesn't have to determine my destiny. My history doesn't have to determine my destiny. And I don't know what you've walked in here with today. But I do know you've had a story. And I know that if God is now a part of your story, he is rewriting your story. And your story can be his story. Your story is his story. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that uh, your story is being written on our hearts. I thank you for the truth that comes out of a story in the book of Joshua about a woman who we see being called a prostitute, Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the prostitute, and to know how she went from being a call girl to a called girl by you is nothing short of amazing. God, thank you that uh, our stories no longer have to be our stories, but they're your stories. That we live not in our history, but we live in the present looking forward to a future. And so whether it be a man like Rusty who never received that kind of love here on earth until his last dying hour, or whether it be a story like Rahab who, I'm sure, finally came to know what it meant to be a woman loved. God, I thank you that that story of you sparing her life, symbolically showing her incredible grace, that now is played out in the New Testament pages of what Jesus did, even the words that Jesus spoke of tax collectors and sinners entering the kingdom of God because, Lord, they knew it wasn't on their own account. They knew it was just upon a faith, a faith that requires a belief in the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior and a faith that gets displayed through action that we do that shows just how much we love. And so, God, today, we've come here today to claim you as the one true God. We've come here today to acknowledge that you are the one who rewrites our stories. And Lord, if there be anybody here who has not had their story rewritten by the person of Jesus Christ, I pray that today, just in a simple prayer of faith, you would say, God, would you come into my life? I accept what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. I receive you by faith. I now turn from my old ways. I turn from my porning. I turn from my prostitution lifestyle. I turn from my tax collector, sinner type of lifestyle that was against you. And Lord, I walk in your story now. Or thank you by faith that we enter into that relationship with you. We acknowledge you as the one true God. We follow you. We love you. 
That's why we sing. That's why we praise. That's why we lift your name high. And even as we do that before we leave now, Lord, I pray that those words that we sing here next are words that we live by and live out in the world that we now enter. We love you and we thank you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.